just going to do our reading, which is Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sari, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. All right, morning, everybody. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here. It's good to be together. Just want to say welcome again. We're going to continue on in our series here in the book of Genesis. And as we get ready for that, let's just pray real fast and then we'll turn our attention to God's word. So pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning, for this community of people that is doing its best to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly together. Pray now that you would speak to us through your word that you would make this new and fresh for us, that there would be something very real and tangible for us to take from this and apply it to our lives this morning. Soften our hearts. Allow us to hear what we need to hear from you today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start with this. Every great story, every story really begins with an inciting incident. Robert McKee, who's an expert on stories, says, Humans naturally seek comfort and stability. Without an inciting incident that disrupts their comfort, they won't enter into a story. Now, an inciting incident may be some sort of big thing that happens. It may be a small moment. It may be a positive development in your life or a negative one. But whatever it might be, it is this moment that changes everything for you. Meeting Jesus on the streets in 1971. Maybe it was a moment where you found out that you lost your job, or where you had a kid. You found out you had cancer. You met that guy or that girl. You moved to a new city. You started caring for an aging parent. Maybe it was a book that you read that sort of changed how you looked at the world. Maybe it was simply just a conversation that started with, hey, we need to talk. Whatever it might have been, inciting incidents are these moments that get us moving in a new direction. And we may have a number of these in a lifetime. In fact, hopefully we have a number of these in a lifetime. As I was thinking about this over the course of the week, there's a number of moments that sort of stand out. The decision about if and where to go to college. The decision to go into full-time ministry. I think about marrying Amy, our move to Boston, starting a family, moving back here to California. All of these inciting incidents. But one of the most pivotal, I think, was this short two-year 
chapter in my life that I spent in Durango, Colorado. Up to that point in my life, I lived almost exclusively in California. And not just in California, but really within two hours of the Bay Area, not very far from family and things that were familiar. So in the summer of 2006, I packed up a very small moving truck with my meager possessions and moved to Southwest Colorado to help some friends plant a church. For me, this was really the moment where I was for the first time on my own. And I had to, you know, people these days say adulting, right? I had to start adulting for the first time figuring out a budget, all that kind of stuff. This is probably why I grew up my beard. This is what I looked like when I lived in Colorado. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> uh, raises all kinds of questions about what Amy saw in me. Now, despite the brevity of this chapter in my life, this was so formative. It was such a huge moment for me for a number of different reasons. One of them, though, is that it brought to the surface a lot of family dysfunction. And it led me to do some really hard work, ultimately, of reconciling, in particular, with my dad. And then it was also really important because it created the space that I needed in my life to realize how important Amy was and to begin pursuing her and ultimately to ask her to be my wife. What are those moments for you, those moments where everything changed? What are your inciting incidents? We're going to look now at the inciting incident in the life of a guy named Abram. But even more than that, this is in many ways the inciting incident in the book of Genesis. And since Genesis comes first, it's also in many ways the inciting incident in all of Scripture. Now, so far we've spent the majority of our time in the first 11 chapters, what scholars call the prehistory. And at this point, the story's been operating, as we've seen, on this really cosmic, big-picture level. And among other things, kind of the big idea here is the author is creating this tension, right, between God's good creation, what we see described in chapters 1 and 2, and then the effects of sin on that good creation, chapters 3 through 11. That's where we've been most of our time. We've seen that God created the world in this harmonious state, what Old Testament writers call shalom. This is the rightly ordered hierarchy of relationships, the way God intended the world to function. God, humans, and then the rest of creation. But then we've seen how sin breaks these relationships, disrupts shalom, reorders that hierarchy, and it brings all kinds of devastating consequences. Alienation, violence, distance from God, and of course, ultimately, it brings death. In the last four weeks we've been in this study, we've looked at the big four stories of the prehistory, right? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the story of the flood, and then last Sunday, the Tower of Babel. Each of these stories is built around this pattern of sin and judgment. There's some sort of break in relationship, and then there are these negative consequences as a result. But if you were with us last week, you'll remember the Tower of Babel story is a little bit different than the other three. There is this sin and this judgment, but then there's this question about what happens after that. The first three stories all end with this moment of grace, some sort of picture, sliver, hope of grace. But the Tower of Babel leaves us asking, where's the grace? 
And this is for good reason. Moses, again, writing to the people of Israel, this group of people who had recently been freed from slavery in Egypt, are trying to remember their story, remember who they are, what they're about. Most importantly, remember who this God is, this Yahweh who has rescued them from slavery. And so the author here, Moses, wants them to see how important this inciting incident in chapter 12 really is. So there's some tension. There's this question kind of hanging over the text. What is God going to do about this pattern of sin and judgment? Is this just the way things are always going to go? Or is there something else going on? Is there another way? Does God have a different plan, a solution to the problem of sin? Now, if you have your Bible open, look back a little bit into chapter 11. This is actually really where the story begins. Verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Now remember, this little phrase, generations of, the Toledot, this is a very critical marker throughout the book of Genesis. There are 11 of these, and this is a signal that something new is happening, sort of a new chapter is beginning. This Toledot is different than the other ones because it begins to focus on one family. The ones that have come before, the Toledot of Adam, of Cain of Noah. These are kind of talking about all of humanity. But here, God begins to narrow his focus in on this family. And in particular, as we'll see in a moment, on this guy named Abram. And as you read through the rest of chapter 11, you see some foreshadowing of Abram's story. You see that he has this nephew named Lot, that he has all this stuff. And in particular, he's married to a woman named Sarai. And Sarai, verse 30, is barren. This is a a critical point that will come up in the story next week. Now, all of that brings us to chapter 12. So look at verse 1 again. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want us to think about this for a minute. This is Abram's first interaction with Yahweh. And... There's nothing in the preamble and some of those verses in chapter 11 that indicate that Abram worshipped or even knew of Yahweh before this verse, before this interaction. In fact, it's pretty well assumed both by the text and by scholars who are trying to interpret the text that Abram probably worshipped the gods of his father, the gods of Terah. So, out of nowhere, Yahweh appears to Abram and commands him to do an incredible thing, right? Go. Here's an inciting incident. God asking Abram to leave his land, his country, his people, his family, everything that was familiar, everything that brought stability and comfort, everything known, leave it. Go. We find out a little bit later in chapter 12 that Abram is 75 years old and that he's acquired a lot of stuff. And so this command to go represents a significant disruption in Sarai and Abram's life. I mean, think about all the logistics, the packing and the unpacking and all that kind of stuff you have to do when you move. Think about the relational side of moving, all of the goodbyes. This is the only place they had ever known, and they're going to go to some other place. And this is not the kind of era where you just hop on a plane and fly back to see your relatives, right? I mean, this is leaving. This is saying goodbye for good. If all that's not incredible enough, there's the small fact that God doesn't tell them 
where they're going, right? Now, I'd like to imagine, I'd like to imagine that if God came to me and said, I want you to leave everything that you know, you're going to pack up all your stuff here in Oakland, you're going to move your family to, say, Hawaii, that I'd be like, okay, I could do that. I could, you know, leave everything behind and go follow God (laughs) to this place called Hawaii. I'd even like to think this. I'd even like to think that if God came to me and said, hey, Steve, I want you to pack up your family, all your stuff, say goodbye, you're going to Bakersfield. Even then, I would be like, okay, I could do that. Because either way, no no one here, I guess, cares that much about Bakersfield. (laughs) Either way, though, at least I know where I'm going, right? And I can begin to imagine what life might look like there. And I can begin to make plans about what we might need to bring with us. I could prepare. But Abram has no idea where they're going. No idea where God is going to lead them. I think for me, that is the hardest part of this whole thing. I can actually get kind of excited about going. And again, imagining what the next thing is and what the future could look like. But the not knowing part, that's really hard. And at the end of 2013, Amy and I and our daughter Marina, we were still living in Boston. And we began to have this sense, this sort of stirring that God was drawing us back here to California. And so we started thinking and praying about that. And in early 2014, some opportunities started to pop up without us really having to tell anybody. And so there was this kind of like, hey, maybe this is really happening. Maybe God is confirming this. In uh, early 2014, we got pregnant with our second child, Cruz, and so we knew that he was coming in mid-November. As we got a little bit deeper into this process, there were sort of three things that were emerging. There was this opportunity here at Regeneration, there was a church in L.A., and there was an opportunity to plant campus ministries in Southern California, and so we're trying to sort out what all those things were. By September, we were confident enough about the move to begin telling our friends and our jobs that we would be leaving shortly after our son was born but we still didn't know where we were going and we still didn't know when September turned into October and October turned into November and so we're two weeks away from Cruz being born and we're doing all this research on Craigslist in three different places trying to figure out where we might land a week before Cruz was born the LA option was out which was somewhat helpful but when we went in to labor we still had no idea Oakland or Southern California what we would be doing where exactly we would be and for me that was my Abram moment But even then, even then, with that uncertainty in our life, at least we knew, generally speaking, where we were going. And we also knew that we had a place to land. We knew we had family and friends here at the very least. Abram and Sarah had no assurance of any of those things. When they packed up the moving truck and moved out of Ur, they had no clue where they were going or what life was going to look like on the other side. By the way, just in case it's not clear, we ended up here. (laughs) Just to wrap up that part of the story. A couple days after Cruz was born, Regen offered us this job, and so here we are. But again, for Abram and Sarah, a total journey into the unknown. And so their beginning point of their relationship with God, their journey to become the patriarchs of the people of Israel, begins with this moment of total disruption. This inciting incident, this call to leave the familiar, the known, the comfortable, and to go into the totally unknown. Now, 
crazy command, crazy thing to do, but this command also comes with a pretty incredible promise. Let's not miss this either. Look at verse 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, there's some language here that should be very familiar to you. This is a signal back to the Tower of Babel story. Remember, in that story, the real problem was not that they wanted to build a really cool tower. The problem was that they wanted to make their name great. They worshipped power and control, the creation of their own hands. They wanted to control their own destiny. They were trying to achieve immortality on their own terms. They wanted to be remembered and praised for what they had accomplished. Abram gets all of this. He gets all of those things that the tower builders desired, but notice how he receives them. Five times in this text, we read this phrase, I will. I will, I will, I will. And who is saying, I will? Yahweh. God is saying, I will make this happen. This is not about what Abram and Sarai are able to do or accomplish. Certainly, their willingness to go is commendable. But they don't earn this. It's Yahweh who is going to make all of this happen. He will make their name great and he will bless them. Central to this promise is this word blessing. And again, this brings us back in the story. In fact, it brings us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, specifically verse 28. Scholar Tremper Longman writes, Life in the garden defines what blessing looks like. And it has spiritual, emotional, psychological, as well as material aspects to it. If you want to know what it means to be blessed, look at what Adam and Eve's life was like in Genesis 1 and 2. This holistic state of well-being brings us back to this idea of shalom. Adam and Eve living in right relationship with God and with each other and with creation. And again, the blessing, not their own doing, not their own accomplishment. Blessings are given. They are a gift. They are a grace. To be blessed is to have unconditional, unmerited favor bestowed on us by God. So, here's the other interesting thing. This blessing is for Abraham, but it's not just for Abraham, right? Through him and his family, what God intended for all of creation to experience, God's shalom will be extended to everyone, or as the text says, to all families. So this promise is given to Abram, but it is for everyone. This is really, 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 really important. If you read a commentary, it'll say that. <laughs> that many reallys. This is really important because this is how God works all throughout Scripture. God working in the particulars of the lives of individuals or specific groups of people, not just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of something bigger and larger than just that person or that group of people. It's always God working in a specific situation for a broader redemptive purpose. 
So Abram and Sarah are really just the first example of this pattern that's repeated in the lives of so many characters. Moses, Ruth, David, Esther, Jesus, on and on and on. All throughout scripture you see this. God is choosing this particular family, not because they're awesome or special, but simply because this is who he's going to use. This particular family will be the vehicle through which he will restore the shalom of his creation. It's massive. This changes everything. So God blesses them to ensure they have something to offer the world, the grace and the peace of the creator himself. How does he do it? Again, by working in specific, particular moments and situations to bring about his bigger plan of the redemption of all things that we read about in Colossians. Now, how does Abram respond to all this? I'm going to kind of blast through the rest of the text here. So Abram went, verse 4, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. When they came to the land of Canaan, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now central to this first encounter between Abram and Yahweh, this first promise that God gives is what scholars call land and seed. Okay, the promise of territory and descendants, a home and a family. So right away, or at least right away as we're reading through the text, surely there's some time that goes by here. God does come through on this first part of the promise, the land. Abram goes, not knowing where they end up in Canaan. By the way, this is the land that the people of Israel, as they listen to this story, they consider Genesis for the first time. They're standing right outside of this land. They end up in Canaan, and God, again, comes through on his promise. This is the land that I will give to you and your descendants. Now, the seed part of it, the descendants part of it, we'll find out more about that next week. It's much more dramatic than this, how that all unfolds. But for now, God has commanded them to go. They take the risk. God comes through. What does Abram do? He responds in worship. Twice we see Abram building an altar to worship and commemorate what God has done in his life. Look at verse 8 in particular. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. We can kind of read right past that sometimes, but this call upon the name of the Lord is significant because as we said, Abram has been worshiping other gods prior to this encounter. So to call upon the name of the Lord is to say yes to Yahweh and no to all of these other gods. Now this whole scene, I think, teaches us a couple of important things about worship. Worship involves both ritual and action. Abraham goes and then he worships. God comes through and then Abram builds an altar. And I think a lot of times we get this backwards. I think sometimes our worship is about trying to steer God in a particular direction or maybe more positively, we're trying to just figure out what we're supposed to do. We worship and then we act. But Abram shows us that we are to act and then worship is about experiencing God in that action and celebrating what he has done. 
We build the altar after God comes through to commemorate these moments, these inciting incidents where we saw God in a new, fresh, and real way. So action leading to worship. Now, I think this text forces us to ask a couple of questions of ourselves, and so we'll just jump into this here as we bring this to a close. So first question is this. Where do you need to take a risk? Has it been a while since you've had an inciting incident? Remember, risk is connected deeply to shalom, to flourishing. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, we introduced this two-by-two chart that should be up here on the screen. I'm not going to explain it in depth again, but if you notice, where we want to be, of course, is up and to the right, flourishing. And flourishing is about living into the tension between action and risk, authority and vulnerability. The only way that we can help to bring shalom to our world, the only way that we experience flourishing and blessing is through that tension of action and risk. Everything else on that chart is a version of control and oppression, suffering, withdrawing, exploiting. Now, sometimes when the risk question comes up, we think that we need to go to India with these guys and start planting churches. And maybe for some of you, that's what you need to do. But risk does not always mean some big life-changing decision. It may simply mean the courage to tell the truth. It may mean engaging your child who's driving you crazy. It may mean putting your resume out there one more time. It may mean talking to a neighbor. It may mean inviting someone to church. It may mean loving and pursuing your spouse in a new way. It may mean, especially in our day and age and what's going on in our country, it may mean striking up a relationship, a friendship with someone who has a very different story than yours. Sometimes the riskiest things are the small things, but to risk nothing is a kind of death cuts us off from flourishing. And so where do you need to take a risk? The second question this text asks of us is how are you sharing the blessing in your life? So many different ways that we experience God's blessing in our lives. And here's an interesting thing. When we take risks, we will experience blessing. Now, this is not some sort of happiness equation. We don't Simply take a risk so that God will give us something in return. In fact, sometimes taking a risk or the blessing that we receive is not what we even want, right? My move to Colorado meant that I was poor, that I was working three different jobs, none of which were very much fun. It meant doing the hard work of making new friends. It meant that my relationship with my parents got worse before it got better. All of that, of course, turned out to be a blessing in the long run, but here's the thing. Here's the fun part about all of this. It opened opportunity to take another risk. Taking risks and receiving blessings, again, is not about achieving happiness. It's not about graduating to some sort of challenge-free zone in life. As we'll see with Abram next week, his life just gets more and more challenging as he continues to follow this Yahweh. And that's actually part of what's risky about all this. The more we risk, the more we experience God, and then the bigger the next risk becomes. But here's the real point of all of this. Risk and blessing are never just about us. Again, this is not a formula to have a funner, nicer, happier life. This is about being faithful to what God has asked us to do. 
The blessing is never simply about us. If this was just a story about Abram getting a blessing, it would be a footnote if it was even included in Scripture. The whole point of this is God is going to restore relationship with humans. God is going to bring about the ultimate redemption of his good creation, and it all starts with Abram's family and with their willingness to share their blessing. The blessing is meant to be shared. That's how shalom is extended. That's how flourishing grows. And this is not just for Abram or for his family. It's also not just the calling, the purpose of Israel, although it is, but it is now, especially post-Jesus, the calling and purpose of the church. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice, again, the parallels to this text. Go. All nations will be affected by this. Sometimes people will come to me or they'll come to Albert and they'll have an idea, like we need to do this thing, and it's you know, a pretty good idea, but it's clearly an internal thing. It's clearly a just-for-region kind of thing. And it's good from time to time to do some things that are you know, kind of for us, but we're much more interested in sharing our blessings with our neighborhood, our city, and our world. If you bring an idea about blessing people outside of this church, we will be very excited about that. And that's not just about us as leadership, and this is not just, again, an Old Testament Abram idea. This is the gospel. God giving himself away, taking a risk, making himself vulnerable for the ultimate blessing, restored relationship, and eternal life. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is how it works. The cross and the empty tomb. Death and resurrection. Losing life to find it. Risk transformed into blessing. It's the good news of Genesis 12. And it's the good news of Jesus and it is good news for us. So may we be a church that risks and may we be a church that shares our blessing for the good of the world. This is a world that is crying out for something, right? Crying out for that blessing to be shared. So may it be true of us. Let's pray. Father, as we've been on this journey the last couple of weeks, I think we've been experiencing the tension that's there in the text about what your plan is, what is ultimately going to happen, how you're going to answer the sin question. And so it's exciting to get on the side of the good news here this morning, to see how you begin this plan with Abram and his family, and how you bless them, not just for their own sake, but to be a blessing to others. Your plan was never just for a person or a small group of people, but for all families of the earth to be blessed. God, we want to be a part of that. We know it's risky. We know it's hard. We know it's easier to focus on ourselves. But may we be a church that risks and that shares our blessing with others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.